This is a story of who we were. How we got here. And where we are going. You've got mail. So join us as we take history off the page. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of History Off the Page. This is the fourth episode in our series on the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. For those of you that are joining us for the first time, in our previous episodes, we talked about sort of the origins of the conflict between the two nations. We talked about the Ottoman period. We talked about the first couple Jewish migrations there in the 1880s into the 1890s. We had another episode on World War I. And you can find out more about all of these episodes on our website, www.historyoffthepage.com or you can just find them on the streaming service of your choice. Now, in today's episode, we're going to be discussing the kind of formative period known as the British Mandate. This uh, basically starts in 1919. Technically, it starts in 1922, but in reality, it kind of starts in 1919. And we're going to bring the story up to 1936. Now, the story doesn't end in 1936, but we get to a kind of major inflection point with the Arab revolt, and we want to talk about that in our next episode. And today what we're going to see is kind of the formative moment when the two communities kind of break apart from each other and really start to go their separate ways. If you want to think about the history of the Israeli-Palestinian relationship as a kind of tragedy, right? obviously it ends today or it's, it's moved today into massive violence, a lot of suffering, this period between really 1919 and 1936, is the moment when not all the bloodshed sort of starts, but it's the moment in the Shakespearean play when we reach a a point of no return. In other words, the two communities start to move in separate directions, and it's really kind of hard to put the, the genie back into the bottle, so to speak. Another way to put this is that we could say the possibility of a one state solution of the idea of a multicultural, coexistent society where Jews and Christians and Muslims, Jews and Arabs, where they all just live together and get along, a multicultural society, this is the moment when that really stops being possible, at least until the the present day. Setting aside if it's even possible in the present day, right? But at least historically, this is a key moment of rupture. On the one side, what we're going to see today is that Palestinian Jews— whether they're quote-unquote native or whether they're immigrants, basically begin to build separate economic and political institutions that would one day become the foundation of the Israeli state. On the other hand, we start to see the emergence of a purely Palestinian Arab society as well. A resolution, if you will, to the tension between this question that we've talked about in previous episodes of Arab versus Palestinian belonging. For those of you that haven't listened to the previous episodes, the short version is if you are growing up in Palestine and you're Arab and you're in sort of the beginning of the 20th century, do you feel that your political aspirations are best expressed as Palestinian or best expressed as Arab? In other words, do you want to live in a separate Palestinian state 
or do you want to live in a separate Arab state? And what we found is basically before 1920, a lot of people, or even most people, as they're thinking about, you know, what does national self-determination mean in Palestine, a lot of them think more in terms of Arab independence, Arab nationalism, as opposed to a specifically Palestinian one. And we'll talk a little bit more about this in the course of the episode today. Okay, let's get into it. When we left off the previous episode, the First World War had just ended with the defeat and collapse of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire, of course, was the nominal political rulers of the territory we now refer to as Palestine. As a result of this collapse, you know, I mentioned in the introduction, we had this idea potentially of a one-state solution. We had this idea of Jews and Arabs living together, working together, sharing in the the sort of um, experience of governance, sharing in the, the politics of governance. And so one of the ways that maybe this was possible was through this idea of Ottoman loyalty. But obviously, after World War I, this is dead. The Ottoman Empire is dead. Nobody cares about loyalty to the Sultan anymore. Certainly not outside of what we would call Turkey today. So in its place... Basically, Zionist notions for the need for a separate Jewish political community had risen considerably. And of course, the key event here, again, we talked about this in the previous episode on World War I, the key event here is the Balfour Declaration. The Balfour Declaration basically says it will be British policy to create a, quote, Jewish national home, unquote. Now, what that means in practice is something that's going to get worked out a lot in today's episode, and then, of course, also in 1948. We also talked in our previous episode about how the process of building this Jewish community isn't just expressed by the British. It's not just a British imperial project. But we start to see Jews forming specific Jewish institutions during the war. And here, one of the biggest ones is the formation of the Jewish Legion, which is several British battalions, that will fight, but will fight as exclusively Jewish units. Now, on the other hand, the local Arab community during World War I continues to wrestle with difficult questions about identity and politics, especially, as I said, this idea of the relationship between the Arab and Palestinian forms of identity. In short, most of the political inertia among the local Palestinian community during and immediately after the war, tends to focus, as I said, on this idea of being Arab much more than it does on the idea of being Palestinian. Or to put this another way, the inertia, politically speaking, is for Arab independence. It is less directly, even if people think of themselves as Palestinians, they're not specifically limiting their aspirations yet to the idea of a Palestinian state. Instead, The hope is for belonging in this kind of greater Syrian kingdom, which will be headed by the Hashemite prince Faisal. Now, of course, the developments that I describe don't happen in a vacuum. They are heavily influenced by the Paris Peace Conference, which is trying to wrestle with this question of what should the world look like after World War I? Right. Again, uh, we've talked about this in a previous episode. Paris Peace Conference envisions itself as kind of the Congress of Vienna of the 20th century. We're going to use national self-determination. We're going to use Wilsonian ideals of, of you know, nationhood. And, and we are going to create the world 
that we'll never experience a war like this again. Of course, many of the people actually at Paris are not interested in this. Beneath the surface, the British, the French, especially the Italians, they want their imperial kind of reward for World War I. They want expansion. The British, as we talked about, want to control Palestine as, as a way of safeguarding basically the Suez Canal. And of course, we did a whole episode on this before, so you can check out our website or just check under the streaming service of your choice. You can look at, at previous episodes. But basically, in the spring and summer of 1919, the victorious powers are going to meet in Paris to kind of hash all this out. They will meet in plenary sessions, and they will give various peoples a chance to come and present their claims to territory. Chaim Weitzman, a chemist that we discussed in the previous episode, who uh, basically becomes the key spokesman of the Zionist movement, especially the key liaison between the Zionist movement and Britain, Chaim Weitzman comes and presents the Zionist case for a Jewish national home on February 27, 1919. Faisal also came and presented the Arab case. I believe it's a little bit earlier in the beginning of February. Now, while you have these plenary sessions going on, you also have behind the scenes delegates writing memoranda. They kind of lay out their claims. It's very lawyer-like, if you might imagine. There's also informal chats that are taking place. People are visiting each other. Let's go grab coffee. Let's go grab a beer. So there's a lot of deliberations. There's a lot of negotiating. And they're trying, again, to kind of put back the entire world, certainly all of Europe and then also the Middle East. So these deliberations, as you might imagine, take time. You don't just sit down and say, oh, okay, we're going to spend you know, three hours talking about the future of Poland, three hours talking about the future of Palestine, and, and that's all we need, right? There's a lot of, again, debate. There's a lot of negotiating. There's a lot of quid pro quo. Okay, we'll give you this. You give us that. And so it's actually not until the start of 1920 that the great powers begin to, to negotiate over the fate of the Ottoman Empire. So that's almost two years that they're sitting around waiting to even start talking about it, in which time, of course, events on the ground will play themselves out. You'll have further developments, right? Things move along. Eventually, by August of 1920, they come up with a peace treaty. It's called the Treaty of Sèvres. But by the time they've worked all this out, again, events are already moving on the ground. People are already exercising power. They're building institutions. The peoples of the Middle East, Jewish, Muslim, Christian, Arab, Zionist, whatever, they don't just sit back and say, oh, okay, tell us you know, what to think. They start building their own political institutions. They start trying to rebuild society on their own. We've already talked about how some of this plays out in terms of efforts to create a greater Syrian kingdom and the creation of Transjordan. Both of these events kind of happened before or even during the negotiations about what's supposed to happen in the region. Now, in Palestine itself, the post-war landscape is also partially shaped by events that take place before the territory is legally assigned to Britain by the League of Nations. As we mentioned in our last episode, the British Army had captured much of the territory in late 1917, fully breaking the Ottoman lines in October of 1918. To provide order, the British basically set up a military government. 
They placed British officers in charge of the future destiny of the land and its people. So Britain is in a uniquely powerful position in some ways to to begin the process of building whatever is going to come next. The British, of course, had endorsed the idea, more or less, of the Zionist cause, had promised the Zionists a Jewish national home in Palestine. And some British officials are very passionate about this. Some of the British officials who are Christians see a kind of messianic idealism in this, see the idea of, you know, as Christians, part of what we want to do is bring Jews back to Palestine, back to Israel. Others, however, are not quite as enthusiastic. Others, whatever the official policy is, realize that they, you know, might upset the local Arab community by embracing Zionism, and so they want to support the Arabs. They want to, you know, move away from the idea of Zionism. They want to halt immigration. Now, for most of these cases, the the interest here in the British is not that they really just, you know, they just feel, you know, for the people. Most of it is they are trying to figure out how do we maintain control over Palestine. So imperial ambitions play a big role in this story. And not only in Palestine, but as we talked about in the previous episode, one of the things that greatly affects Palestine is Syria. Well, Syria is all about French imperialism. The French are the ones who destroy the kind of native effort to build an Arab kingdom under Prince Faisal. And so with the destruction of Faisal's Syrian kingdom in the summer of 1920, this kind of reorients kind of Arab, local Arab, or we could call them Palestinian, nationalist aspirations, right? That the idea of a greater Serbia is dead. Now it's time to move on to a specific idea of Palestine. However, there are still problems, especially on the Palestinian side of the ledger. Who officially speaks for the Palestinian people? This is still a problem today. If you listen to our reflection episode, one of the points that I tried to make is you have Fatah, you have Hamas, you have Islamic Jihad, you have others, you have the diasporic Palestinian community, you have the Palestinian community living in Gaza, in the West Bank. Who gets to speak on behalf of Palestinians? Today, it's still hard to answer that question, but historically, there were also sharp political divisions in the local Arab or, again, Palestinian community. On the one hand, Palestinian politics, you don't have democratic institutions yet. So Palestinian politics, which kind of comes out of the Ottoman period, is dominated by the politics of notables. This is the idea that there are just certain families who have historically played a a key role in local Arab society, local families that had, had exercised power through institutions or occupied certain offices. And so these families basically get to speak on behalf of the Palestinian people. Nobody's really going to, again, farmer Ahmed, farmer Yusuf, saying, what do you really feel about this? You know, what do you think? The notables like to speak on behalf of the people, and it's not really that different in some ways than the process here in the United States, the process here in Europe, uh, if you go back far enough. So this idea of the politics of notables is, is very common, and its legacy had survived into the Ottoman Empire. There are attempts to reform it, but we don't have time to get into those right this moment. 
In Palestine, what matters is that there are two major families that have a pretty good rivalry against one another in terms of trying to exercise power over the, the local people. One of these families is the al-Nashashibis, the other is the al-Husseinis. Now, the Husseinis had come to power in the early 19th century as supporters of the Ottomans against another dynasty or another rival. Technically, this is sort of uh, an Egyptian dynasty. They're based in Egypt. Uh, the ruler's name is Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali actually probably comes from Albania. So he's not really Egyptian, but he's appointed as kind of governor of Egypt. And he starts to build his own kind of power base there. He actually conquers Palestine in 1831. By the start of the 20th century, the Husseini family had begun to occupy prominent political and cultural positions in Palestine. Between 1864 and 1920, for example, 13 mayors of Jerusalem were Husseinis. And to achieve this standing, the family draws upon its great wealth from the south, which it then combines with political opposition to Jewish immigration towards the end of the 19th century. Later on, the al-Husseinis will become kind of champions of the idea of being anti-mandate or anti-British. Their chief rivals were the al-Nashashibis, who on the other hand traced their lineage back to the 15th century, where they again had occupied a number of key positions in Ottoman governance. By the start of the 20th century, some members of the family had embraced pan-Arabism. And if you recall from our World War I lecture, one of the things that we talked about was Jamal Pasha, and the repression not just of local Jewish communities, but also of Arab nationalists, Arab leaders, people that espouse the idea of pan-Arabism. One of the leaders of that movement who gets executed was one of the al-Nashashibi clan. Now, after the war, the Nashashibi clan proved more amenable to the idea of Zionism. Doesn't mean that they outright support it, but they are at least more willing to sit down and engage in dialogue and, and to try to find kind of a, a solution as opposed to the sort of zero-tolerance line that's being pushed more by the Husseini clan. Now, in the end, the decisive factor for the emergence of a specifically Palestinian-focused politics, as I mentioned, is the suppression of Faisal's nascent kingdom in Syria by the French, which again extinguishes hopes for a greater Arab state in the region. Again, out of a sense of practicality, Palestinian nationalists now only have kind of one future direction they can work in, and that is the idea of building a Palestinian state. In December of 1920, you have this thing called the Muslim Christian Association, and they will sponsor a convention in Haifa that eventually serves as the main political mechanism for Arab governance under the mandate. This is known as the Palestine Arab Congress and it produces the first political statement of Palestinian nationhood as specific Palestinian nationhood. And this included, really for the first time, a claim to the specific territory of Palestine as the right of its Arab inhabitants as the expression, if you will, of national self-determination. It rejected the idea that Jews had any special political or moral rights there. This is essentially saying basically giving a middle finger to the Balfour Declaration, right? We completely reject, we, we uh, don't even give any credence to 
Balfour or any of the claims that it makes. Now, it's easy to get wrapped up in, okay, what's going on with Israel-Palestine, Jewish-Arab relations here, but a really key thing that this document kind of also makes or arguments that it advances is the idea of the primacy of Palestinian belonging over confessional or clan loyalties. So it's not just about being anti-Zionist, but a big part of it, obviously, if we're talking about religion, a big part of it is the idea that, well, you have many Christians, you have mostly Muslims, but many Christians who are, are identifying as Palestinian, who are Arab. So the process of building Palestinian national identity, again, it's not just exclusive about, okay, we're, we're anti-Zionist. There's a huge part of it that is also saying we are religiously inclusive you know, Christian, Muslim brothers, you know, we're, we're all in this together. Finally, this uh, declaration by the uh, Palestine Arab Congress, it, it basically says we don't want any more Jewish immigration to Palestine. We don't want to, you know, further grow this, this other minority that's here. And it also calls for a prohibition on the purchase of land by Jews from Arabs. And again, if you haven't listened to the episodes before, this uh, process of Jews purchasing land at market prices from Arabs who had, uh, in many cases, gained that land under the Ottoman Land Act of 1858. Arabs who were not living on the land, but, but basically acquire it by registering it. They then sell that to Jews and to Jewish organizations. This is a huge part of the process of what some have labeled colonization. Now, during this same period, another political force that would play a key role for years to come, is the emergence of a guy named Amin al-Husseini. He is obviously a member of the Husseini clan. And he becomes the Mufti of Jerusalem in 1921. Later on, he'll acquire the title Grand Mufti. For those of you that are not familiar with the history of the region, or especially the terms, a Mufti is kind of like a jurist in Islamic law. So he's someone that kind of gives opinions about how do we interpret things, now, Haj Amin will actually play a pretty pivotal role in the story running all the way through 1945, so up through World War II, and we'll talk more about him and his legacy as we go through the podcast. What's interesting to note here is that Amin only gets this position due to British interference. Basically, one of the things that's going to happen is in the early 20s, there's some violence in Palestine. The British want to sack the mayor, who had been a Husseini. And they replace him with, of course, the rival, the Nashashibi guy. Well, you do that, okay, but now you don't want to piss off all the Husseinis. So you need to kind of give them a carrot, something to, to keep them in the game, if you will. This is a huge part of British colonial policy is co-opting these local notables. Bring them into administration, reinforce their power, make them dependent on the colonial system so that you buy their loyalty. So this mufti position is actually elected. It doesn't initially look like Hajamin is going to be able to make it. Uh, the British commissioner, Herbert Samuel, plays around with it a little bit, gets a guy to kind of uh, withdraw from the race. Haj Amin actually finishes third. But because he's in the top three, then the commissioner can appoint whichever the top three he wants. And so basically that's why uh, or that's how he comes to power. Another thing that the British do as part of their colonial policy is they really emphasize religion and religious identity. Part of this, you could argue, is manipulative. 
you look at a place like India, you look at the Raj, basically, especially after 1857, the British understand their role as reconstructing Indian society, and they make religious belonging, Hindu versus Muslim, much, much more politically important for the local population than it had historically been. And of course, we see how that plays out in violence, especially after World War II. Well, basically, in you know, the Palestinian lands, they're doing the same thing. They've already promised Jews a national home with Balfour. They're going to start setting up institutions in Palestine, not to reflect the will of the Palestinian people, but to reflect the will of the separate religious communities. And so one of these is the Supreme Muslim Council that they set up. And Hajamin is then elected to be the president of the Supreme Muslim Council at the same time that he's also the Mufti. Where this is going is that Haj Amin is going to have an awful lot of local political power. He is going to be the voice through which many Palestinians, or many Arabs if you want to put it that way, that they are going to express their voice politically is going to be through Haj Amin. One of the ways that Haj Amin uses this influence is to espouse or push the idea of anti-Zionism. Now, his anti-Zionism will grow over time. It's not constant. Some of you may be familiar with stories about him during World War II. And we'll get to that in a later episode. He doesn't start out as radical as he ends up, right? It builds up over time. Initially, he's more of a moderate anti-Zionist. But the key point for now that I really want to highlight is that we're starting to see the emergence of a specifically Palestinian version of politics, Palestinian political institutions that are capable of articulating a national future based on the geography of Palestine. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but by the early 1930s, people obviously become frustrated with this kind of politics of notables. The Husseinis, the Nashashibis, They're both, in some ways, very deeply connected to British institutions. And so you have a kind of grassroots nationalist movement led by a group of uh, national activists, some of them are school teachers, in the early 1930s. One of the things that they will do is to found the Hizib al-Istiklal Party, or the Independence Party of Palestine in 1932. Now, for future reference, we'll just call them Istiklal. Basically, this means independence. You can find this uh, name in a number of contemporary political parties, so it's not unique to the Palestinian experience. But Istiklal becomes this kind of middle-class movement, almost a kind of quasi-democratic movement for change in Palestine, for especially a kind of Palestinian nationalist politics. As I said, it's led by a group of middle-class politicians and educators especially from the Nablus area. And they try to develop a more formal and active political program towards the idea of establishing an Arab state. Now, on the one hand, this meant crystallizing Palestinian nationalist goals, which, of course, included the explicit rejection of the mandate and a demand for independence, not working with the British government anymore, not working under the idea of tutelage, but a firm call for immediate independence. It was also explicitly 
an Arab nationalist movement. Many of the intellectuals that are involved in the, the birth of the movement and the process, they still think about themselves as Arab nationalists. They still think about their loyalty of being Arab as being very important. So they also reject the Balfour Agreement. They also would define themselves or characterize themselves as being anti-Zionist. What's really interesting about the Istiqlal group, however, is the way that they begin to pioneer a new modern form of mass nationalist politics to replace this traditional emphasis that we've talked about, about the politics of the notables. Instead of backroom deals and uh, quid pro quos and things like that, Istiqlal members will embrace the idea of mobilizing the Arab public. How do we build a new kingdom? It's not through negotiating with the French or the British or Heim Weizmann or whoever. We basically form the community first on the streets, and that will then drive political change. Tactically, Istiqlal champions more active measures. They organize press campaigns. They organize rallies and demonstrations and strikes. One of the things that they do is they pick up on some of the anti-colonial nationalism coming out of India, and they kind of embrace similar tactics. They call for boycotts of British goods. They call for non-cooperation. Stop taking jobs in the British colonial administration. Stop putting yourself in a position where you can't openly speak out against the British, because if you do, you'll get fired. Now, the Istiqlal party remains fairly small after its foundation. It is not widely braced by many of those notables. We mentioned Haj Amin, the Mufti. The Mufti does not like Istiqlal. The Mufti sees them as a threat to his power. But it is an example of Palestinian national political development that will play a key role in an event coming up called the Arab Revolt in 1936. We are going to discuss this very briefly at the end of this episode, and then it'll be the main focus of the episode that that we'll do next time. Because the Arab Revolt is really one of the seminal moments of the story of how do we get Israel-Palestine, and then why don't we really get a Palestine? It's, It's really more Israel today. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let me, let me not jump too far ahead. Now, all of these political developments, again, not only are they not taking place in a vacuum, not only do you have the British and the French and colonization and all that, but they also take place against some pretty phenomenal developments within Palestine itself, especially within the Arab community. And I'm talking here not about political development, but social and economic development especially on the sort of, again, the Palestinian side of the ledger. Consider that when the initial Jewish migrations to Palestine began in the 1880s, the Arab population is about 250,000 people. To put that number into perspective, between 1919 and 1948, close to double that number of Jews immigrate to Palestine. When Zionists in the 1880s and 1890s and even the early 1900s, when they're talking about this idea of, well, of course there's plenty of room here. Of course there's plenty of room for the two communities to to get along together. The Palestinian society that they look at is very, very different than the Palestinian society of the 1920s. Why aren't Jews a majority by 1948 like many uh, Arab nationalists feared? Well, it's because around 1900, the Arab population of Palestine begins to grow exponentially, even faster than the Jewish population. 
By 1914, the population had already doubled. By 1931, it had reached 840,000. Much of this growth is a product of better living conditions, better medical care, increased food supplies. The, the Palestine of really 1900 forward, right, there's the interruption of the war years, but the Arab communities in Palestine also experience a tremendous growth, a tremendous surge. There is, as I mentioned in a previous episode, about 100,000 immigrants to Palestine who come from other parts of the Middle East who are not Jewish, who are Arabs, mostly Muslims. Now, in economic terms, there is a role here that is played by Jewish immigration. You have, again, thousands of Jews migrating to the area. Once they get there, they need houses. They're going to need food to eat. Uh, Eventually, they'll start setting up some industries. This all provides a giant economic stimulus. Not to go on too much of a tangent here, but when we talk about immigration, a lot of times I think in at least the contemporary world and contemporary American and European society, people think about immigrants as competition. What does it mean to have immigrants come to my town? It means that they're going to be after my jobs. They're going to be after other people's jobs. The immigration is dangerous or immigration is problematic because it, it creates economic competition. It's going to drive down wages, etc. Some of that is true. But immigration also creates demand. Immigrants need things. Immigrants do things. Immigrants build things. Immigrants employ lots of people. And this is also true in Palestine, again, as the various aliyahs are taking place. The rising population on both sides literally means more mouths to feed. If you are a farmer, if you are someone who is engaged in agriculture... Prices of produce are going to go up because I have a bigger market and I didn't have to go anywhere to access that market. The market came to me. Again, if if you are involved in industrialization, which starts in Palestine again around 1900, if we're starting to build up the shipping industry, the oil refining industry, we talked about the citrus industry a little bit, the electrical industry, we're going to electrify Palestine in just a second. All those industries need workers. The majority of the population is Arab. Many of the people getting employment in these sectors are Arabs. We could talk about the Jaffa Electric Company, founded by Pinhas Rutenberg in 1923. Now, economically speaking, this isn't experienced evenly. Per capita income is usually a little bit higher among the Jewish population of Palestine than the Arab population. But at the same time, historians widely agree that Arab standards of living in Palestine are also slightly higher than almost everywhere else in the Middle East. Certainly much higher than Jordan, large parts of Syria, Egypt. You'd much rather be living in Palestine in 1923, 1928, something like that. Now, this economic growth matters because basically it negates one of the Zionists' main arguments as to how or why the process of migration, the building of a Jewish national home, is not necessarily going to displace the local Arab population. There are plenty of Zionists in the 1880s, 1890s, even in through World War I, 
who think about what's going on not as colonization, but as a kind of mutually beneficial coexistence that can take place. One of their big arguments is, yeah, we can come in. We can invest in the local Arab community. We can, you know, the the idea of, um, you know, rising tide uh, lifts all boats. But this idea that economic benefits are going to offset political or cultural resentment, it falls apart when the Palestinian society is already doing quite well, when they're already experiencing economic growth. It also, psychologically, it's hard to square this, this circle of rising Arab or Palestinian economic and political development with the idea then that, that Arabs also need to make concessions to Zionists. Why, some of them would say, if we're doing so well, forget Zionists for a second, if we're doing so well, why is Iraq the ones that become independent? Why is Syria and Egypt, why are those places becoming independent? But we're supposed to make concessions? So Palestinian national strength, like the emergent Jewish national community's strength that we'll talk about in just a second, it makes the necessity of relying on or working with the other party seem not only unnecessary, but in a way unfair. If we're doing okay on our own, why do we need the other party in this? So this development, this growing strength again of not just Palestinian nationalism, but the growing strength of Palestinian society is a key part in the process and and why we're going to go, as I said in the introduction, in two different ways, two different paths. Now, it's against the backdrop of this rising Palestinian national consciousness that the next two waves of Jewish migration occur. The first of these, known as the Third Aliyah, lasted from about 1919 to 1923 and was essentially a continuation of the Second Aliyah. It involved the immigration of about 35 to 40,000 Jews. Most of them come from Eastern Europe. Most of them come, as the Second Aliyah members did, with a kind of socialist background or socialist mindset. They view the project of what they're doing, not just as, okay, I'm, I'm leaving my homeland, okay, I'm a refugee, but they view it as a kind of building of a new future. There's a utopianism to it. They therefore do many of the same activities that, again, the Second Aliyah did. They start draining swamps. They build roads. They found new kibbutzim. They conquer land. I know a lot of the the discourses about colonialism and Jews steal land and all that. And yes, there are some examples of that. But for the most part, again, the land that that these Jews are, are kind of coming to settle on is desert land, is land that needs to be reclaimed, is swamp land. Malaria is a huge problem. So again, the the second and third Eliot are, are very similar. Now, as this wave begins to ebb by 1924, you start to get a new source of Jewish migration. This comes from Poland, which, of course, becomes independent after World War I. Part of nascent Polish nationalism also has a degree of anti-Semitism to it. There is a desire to drive Jews out of Polish society. So over the course of the following four years, approximately 70,000 Polish Jews come to Palestine in the hopes of starting new lives. 
unlike the members of the second and third Eliot, these Polish Jews tend to be more urban. They tend to be more middle class. They tend to settle in cities. They're not going to go out and live on a farm. And basically, by the 1930s, they are the ones who will start or they will play a key role in the industrialization of Palestine. All right, we've talked so far about the idea of the kind of emergent Palestinian nationalist politics, emergent Palestinian community, economics, politics, society, etc. Let's turn our attention back to the Jewish community of Palestine or the Zionists. Now, we had already talked about in our previous episode the ways in which the Zionist community has a kind of head start vis-a-vis the local Arab community. They already had the Zionist congresses. They had the Jewish Legion. They had Hashomer, which for those of you that didn't listen to the previous episode, Hashomer, the watchman, is is kind of like a militia almost, but a a kind of very small defensive militia. The idea is, uh, is guarding Jewish settlements, guarding Jewish property. It's founded kind of in the run-up to World War I. But they have these early efforts at institution building. And these efforts will accelerate during the early mandate period. Now, before we get into how they do this, let's say a little bit more about the British presence, about how the British go about constructing the mandate government, because the British and the League of Nations both will in many ways kind of formally adopt or support this idea of building a separate Jewish national political trajectory. The British, as we've seen, took military control over all of Palestine in October 1918. As I said, they then basically set up military administration until April of 1920. At this point, Palestine is kind of awarded as part of the post-war peace settlement to Britain, but as a mandate which is then formalized in 1922 by the League of Nations. In other words, what's the difference between a mandate and a colony? Theoretically, a mandate is the idea that, well, the people aren't ready to govern themselves. They need to build up institutions. They need to to build up some kind of national culture. And so the British are going to kind of safeguard Palestine for a while, kind kind of be like the parent or the uncle, kind of foster the idea of politics there. So it's, it's not as directly or explicitly colonial or exploitative as some other kind of British possessions are, at least in theory. In practice, as we'll see, the British are very much going to adopt a colonial mindset to quite a bit of it. To carry out this task, the British Prime Minister Lloyd George appointed as High Commissioner Sir Herbert Samuel. Now, Samuel was Jewish, but he was also a British liberal. He was sympathetic to Zionism, but he wasn't sort of a major player in the Zionist movement itself. His interests, at least I would say, were to represent Britain first, not not to um, represent Jews or Zionists or something like that. And for about two years, Samuel and other prominent British politicians, including Winston Churchill, will work with the local Jewish community to craft an official government for the territory. We'll work with the local communities to craft an official government for the territory. This is fully achieved on August 10th, 1922, by declaration of the British king. The mandatory government was headed by an appointed high commissioner, who will turn out to be Herbert Samuel, at least the first one is Herbert Samuel. 
and this high commissioner in turn appoints all major officials in the mandatory government. Now, Samuel, as I mentioned, is a liberal. His idea of you know, what a government should look like is not the idea of dictatorship, is not the idea of we just have a viceroy and the viceroy makes all the decisions. No, he believes in the idea of building up an independent state. And so one of the things he wants to do is have an independent judiciary. Another key part of liberalism, of course, is the idea of freedom of religion. The British, coming out of their own history, their own wars of religion in England, they are very careful to constantly emphasize the idea that we want to keep the religions apart from each other. We want to let them do their own things. And so in this nascent mandate government, religion is given over to the respective religious communities. There's a lot of latitude over various social policies given to each religious community. Now, of course, while that does mean then that Jewish, Muslim, and Christian churches and the various Christian denominations are going to have a lot of authority, right? How do we interpret divorce? Well, you know, we can each do our own thing. But it also means that they are not going to be working together. And this is one of the key problems. Samuel does envision initially the idea of a multicultural or multi-ethnic Palestinian state or Palestinian future, one could argue. He wants to have a legislative council, and he wants that council to be composed of members of all the different religions, especially elected citizens from both the Jewish and Arab communities. So how do we do this? Well, we have to kind of set up the electoral system so that it, it creates opportunities for all the different communities. Samuel will establish a system of colleges to guide the voting, which basically ensures that the council will provide both Jewish and Christian minority members. Now, as he's floating these ideas around, Arab political leaders will protest the inclusion of Jews on the body. Why would we single out this minority and give them more political power than they might otherwise have? Arabs come back with a very reasonable argument. We just need democratic elections. Now, of course, if you have a purely democratic election, what does that do to minorities? So it's not hard to understand the case that either one is making, but both of them kind of also have their kind of downside. In the end, what Samuel will do is basically place all of the power in the hands of the high commissioner. The high commissioner essentially becomes a British viceroy in each of the two communities, or three communities if you want to count Muslims and, and Christians separately, but each of them will start to form their own associations. Now, at the same time that all this is going on, the League of Nations passes their official mandate in July of 1922. Importantly, it integrates the Balfour Declaration into its text, essentially transforming the promises made by the British in 1917, which were vague, which were open to interpretation. The Balfour Declaration talks about there being a Jewish national home, with the non-Jewish population having their rights respected. What does that mean? It's kind of vague. It's not clear. In some ways, it's very intentionally clear because we're also negotiating with Faisal and Hussein about, you know, this idea of what the Arab kingdoms are going to look like. But the mandate takes this and actually puts it into the legal 
contractual side of the mandate document. The words, quote, the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, it being clearly understood that nothing should be done which might prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, end quote. Those words are literally in the preamble of the mandate. The League of Nations is basically saying, as the British are setting up this new kind of state that will come out of Palestine, it needs to have a Jewish national home. That is a key part of what you are supposed to be doing. It goes beyond this. It further codifies in the following articles that, quote, the mandatory shall be responsible for placing the country under such political, administrative, and economic conditions as will secure the establishment of a Jewish national home. And again, it also includes this language about safeguarding the civil and religious rights of the inhabitants of Palestine, irrespective of race and religion. But the mandate is pretty clearly embracing Zionism. Article 6 promises that the administration of Palestine would, quote, facilitate Jewish immigration under suitable conditions and shall encourage, in cooperation with the Jewish agency referred to in Article 4, close settlement by Jews on the land, including state lands and wastelands not required for public purposes. Article 7 required the government to facilitate, quote, the acquisition of Palestinian citizenship by Jews who take up their permanent residence in Palestine. Article 22 required that English, Arabic, and Hebrew would be the official languages of the mandate, and that any official documents printed in Arabic would also need to be printed in Hebrew. When you look at the document as a whole, one is struck by how focused it is on the idea of the establishment of a Jewish national home and how closely it reflected Zionist principles. There isn't a whole lot in here about the thoughts and aspirations of the local Arab population beyond the concept of religion. And if you read it, there is a whole lot in here about how we need to safeguard the religious and civic rights of Muslims, of Christians. But the, the idea that the framers of this text have as they are talking about the mandate and probably the British government officials as they are creating the mandate themselves in 1922, you know, the early 1920s, their understanding of what's going on is not that we have a Palestinian and a, a Zionist or a Jewish community. It is that we have Jews, Muslims, and Christians, and we need to find a way to have more Jews coming in and, and being a part of this thing that's going to be created. They don't really see Palestinian belonging as a distinct and separate nationality. Now, part of this might be the colonial gaze. Part of it might be that they're just not there. They're obviously, you know, even the ones that are there, you know, do, how much do they see the natives? How, you know, how much are they picking up on local developments? They're certainly not interacting on a daily basis with, you know, ordinary people, you know, the local farmer, so to speak. But I think another part of the story is also just this, this tension that we've talked about between Palestinian and Arab identity. I think for a lot of the Europeans that are in the area that are trying to understand who are these people that are the non-Jewish population of Palestine, they are thinking about them still as Arabs 
and not yet as Palestinians. And that's a huge, huge part of the problem. So again, to defend the rights of the local population, the way that British and League of Nations authorities kind of read this is much more in terms of a religious identity than any geographic or political sense of the question. Now, of course, if you're Palestinian, these things don't matter so much. Like, you have your feeling of identity. What does it matter what someone else reads or doesn't read, you know, that they're misperceiving you? The mandate document itself is pretty inflammatory. Where's the discussion of us? Where's the discussion of our side? What happened to national self-determination? We have a nation here of essentially Palestinians, we're being read out of the story. At any rate, two points are kind of worth making before we move on so that I can kind of, again, bring everything back to the larger interpretive uh, questions that we're dealing with. While the document helps shape British opinions on the mandate, it's not in itself definitive. What does matter is constructing what this state is supposed to be on the ground. Whatever the flaws of the mandate are, they are still clearly talking about a one-state solution. They are still trying to envision a place where Jews and Muslims and Christians all get along and coexist. And, you know, again, Herbert uh, Samuel's initial attempts to build a kind of legislative government, to, to kind of build the institutions of Palestine, he is trying in some ways to find coexistence, to find working together. At the same time, however... One could argue that the real significance of the League of Nations mandate is actually Article 4. Article 4 recommended the creation of a Jewish agency that could basically act as the official political voice of Jews in Palestine. The idea is, if you are trying to create this government, if you're trying to run the mandate, you need some kind of voice of the Palestinian Jewish community. Who do you negotiate with? How do we, you know, we don't have elections yet. Who represents them? So the idea is to have a practical partner, a representative that, again, British authorities can negotiate with. The framers of the League of Nations mandate feel like they don't have to reinvent the wheel here. It's not the same as the Palestinian side where you're inventing these institutions from the ground up. You already have the Zionist movement represented by the World Zionist Congress. And so, the League of Nations mandate will officially appoint the World Zionist Congress as that agency. As the official political voice of Palestinian Jews, even if not all of them are actually Zionists or they're religious Zionists, they're not political Zionists. This, I would argue, is one of the most consequential moments in the entire history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. For basically, in effect, it creates a proto-Jewish government within the mandate system. The Jewish agency did not have legislative power, but in the years that followed, it would help coordinate the construction or coordination of all manner of Jewish-specific institutions. And the first of the institutions that we can talk about is the development of the Haganah. The Haganah is basically going to be the, the foundation, if you will, of the Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF, the modern Israeli military. 
Now, to go back a little bit, by the early 1920s, we had uh, the foundation of some of these elements of a future Jewish state. I just talked about the World Zionist Congress becoming the Jewish agency. But states do a lot of things beyond just the idea of elections and executives and bureaucracies. So there's two other Jewish institutions that we need to mention that will play a key role in basically, again, kind of forming a proto-Israeli state before 1948. And the first of these, of course, is the idea of defense. As we discussed in one of our previous episodes, states claim a monopoly on the legitimate use of violence. They're charged with the idea of defending their people. They're supposed to maintain law and order. They're supposed to dispense justice. So states have their police forces, have the army, and they have these institutions that carry out that role at a national level. On the Jewish side of the ledger, before World War I even, we started to see movement in this direction of forming specifically Jewish defense organizations. We talked in our episode about the kind of Ottoman period about the idea of Hashomer, the watchman. We talked in our previous episode on World War I about the Jewish Legion. Now, neither of these institutions are tolerated by the British in the immediate post-war period. But the need for Jewish defense seems to increase for Zionists pretty exponentially after World War I is over. We'll talk about this more in just a few minutes, but there is a lot of violence that happens in the 1920s and early 30s in Palestine. It's not one directional, right? The two communities do go at each other a little bit. But basically, the failure of British authorities to protect Jews during episodes of this violence, especially in 1920, combined with a successful defense role played by people like Vladimir Yabotinsky in 1920 during some of those riots, this helps spur interest in forming a local Jewish militia. We can't rely on the British to keep the peace. We have to build our own structures ourselves. And so this leads to the creation, again, of the Haganah, which is basically going to become a kind of Jewish militia. Officially founded in 1920 under the leadership of Joseph Hecht, a Jewish Legion veteran, its initial capabilities are pretty limited. But after more violence, especially violence in 1929, again, we're going to talk about this more specifically in a second, the Haganah quickly becomes the focus of Jewish defense efforts. Most young men and women will begin to serve in the Haganah after 1929. They will receive military training. They will receive funds and arms through other Zionist institutions, such as the Zionist Congresses and the Histradut that we'll discuss in just a moment. By the mid-1930s, the Haganah is not quite an army, but it had grown strong enough to carry out significant military operations. It had a total strength of about 10,000 active members, which, as you'll remember, is about the size of Faisal's Arab Legion. It has 40,000 reservists. The Haganah begins smuggling weapons into Palestine, which, of course, then spurs Fears among the local Arab population. What is the Haganah really doing? Aren't they kind of really preparing for a revolt? Aren't the Jews going to try to seize all of our lands? Doesn't anti-Zionism make increasing sense? 
right? I talked about how this period in the 1920s and early 30s is when the two communities kind of split definitively. The Haganah is part of that. In fact, by the time you get to 1936, when the Arab Revolt begins, the Haganah is so effective that not only does it fulfill the role of protecting local Jewish communities, but it will also kind of work on behalf of the British mandatory authorities. It will set ambushes. It will use decoys. There will be the creation of these kind of night squads that are going to carry out raids with British approval on Arab guerrilla camps. Now, these night squads eventually are phased out, and the British will try to kind of suppress the Haganah a little bit after the Arab Revolt is over. But in essence, this is the period, the crystallization, when the Jewish army emerges, right? What will become the IDF? When the UN partition happens in 1947-48, there's already a sophisticated, experienced, trained, organized Jewish militia that is ready to engage in the war, essentially. Now, again, I've said several times we're going to talk about this Arab revolt in the next episode, but before we get there, we should also note that enthusiasm for these Jewish institutions was often mixed. Palestinian Jews, just like Palestinian Arabs, split over political questions, such as the relationship between labor and Zionism, the degree of cooperation that should be pursued with British authorities, should Zionism be a political movement or a religious movement? Is it secular? Where, where does religion fit into the question? What about capitalism? How does capitalism fit with this? What about socialism? For the most part, especially once the Arab Revolt begins, Jewish authorities before 1939 or Zionist authorities before 1939 tend to favor cooperation with the British as a means towards securing additional concessions, you know, additional uh, immigration, tend to think about the British as being someone who can help them get what they want as opposed to an obstacle. However, not all groups are feeling this way. Not all Zionist groups feel this way. Instead, some of them will advocate for a more radical or maximalist approach to the political questions of Palestine. We've already met, of course, perhaps the most important members of this maximalist community. The big name to know is Vladimir Ze'ev Yabotinsky. Ze'ev, by the way, is Hebrew for wolf. So as Yabotinsky becomes increasingly Zionist, as he becomes increasingly aggressive, of course, you know, who are you going to identify yourself with? A wolf. That makes much, much more sense. For those of you that did not listen to our previous episode where we talked about Yabotinsky, he's basically a Russian immigrant. He adopts Zionism after a wave of pogroms in 1903. He spends some time kind of on the eve of World War I courting Turkish support for Zionism in Istanbul. But after being expelled, he helps found the Jewish Legion. After the war is over, Yabotinsky helps found the Haganah. He's obviously very interested in questions of defense. But he actually grows disenchanted with it and especially with the Zionist political leadership, because he feels they are too accommodating with the British. They are, they are working too closely with them. And the idea that this is a much more existential moment in time for European Jewry. Someone like Yabotinsky would say, we don't have the time to sit around and debate these things. We don't have the time to wait for British you know, opinion to move in a certain direction. We don't have decades here to build the new Jew Jewish home. 
we have a year or two or maybe three, but the the tide of anti-Semitism is rising. Bad things are on the horizon. We need Israel now. I've seen the attitude of Zionists in the 1920s and 30s described as zero-sum, this idea that any gains that the Jewish community are going to make can only be experienced by the Arabs losing something and that that is kind of embraced. And I would disagree with that characterization. But it's certainly true for Jabotinsky. Jabotinsky, you know, thinks about what's going on and says, look, we have to secure for our own. If that means the Arab population suffers, if that means they're driven off the land, that's too bad. Like survival is what matters. And this then justifies violence. So in 1923, Jabotinsky and others will help found an alternative Zionist movement. It's called Batar, which advocated for, as I said, the immediate creation of an independent Jewish state, compromising present-day Israel and Jordan as well. Unlike many Zionists who thought common ground could be found with the local Arab population, perhaps naively, but they still believed in it, Jabotinsky again embraced this idea of conflict as unavoidable. And with the Jewish community of Europe facing potential annihilation due to the rising waves of anti-Semitism, for him, the necessity of securing a Jewish homeland took top priority over humanitarian concerns for the local Arab population. In 1931, members of the military wing of this revisionist movement broke away from the Haganah to form something called the Irgun or Etzel, or in English, we would probably call it the National Military Organization in the Land of Israel. Initially, their actions focused on preparing to defend Jews during outbreaks of violence. And as the British began to place increasing restrictions on Jewish immigration in the 1930s, the Irgun or the Etzel began to focus on the idea of smuggling. They start bringing in large numbers of Jews beyond or outside of what British mandatory authorities are willing to allow. In fact, the British will actually kind of set up a a concentration camp, a refugee camp, whatever you want to call it, but it's basically an internment camp in Cyprus for Jews that they catch trying to, to sneak into Palestine. Over the course of time, the Irgun develops into what some would call a terrorist organization. Again, it gets into this fine line of one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. But the Irgun carry out asymmetrical attacks with regularity, not only on British forces, but also on the local Arab population. The most notorious attack that they make is actually after the war. It's the bombing of the King David Hotel. We'll talk about that in a future episode. But in 1936, when the Arab revolt starts, they start carrying out direct attacks on Arab villages. The idea here is framed often as reprisal. You killed one of ours, so we're going to kill one of you. But there is also a clear message being sent about intimidating the local Arab population. There's also another problem with the activities of the Irgun or the Etzel, and it's one that you could argue is really at the heart of the current problems in Israel-Palestine today, which is the notion of collective punishment. Basically, the idea is, as I said, they did something to one of ours, we're going to do something to one of theirs. 
the group that's thinking along these lines is considering that there are these absolute groups, that everybody within the groups, all the Zionists think the same, all the Arabs think the same, you're all part of the same movement. So therefore, you know, you prick us, we prick you back. The problem is that the people on the receiving end of the violence don't necessarily have that same mindset, don't necessarily have those same questions of identity. Some of the protest movements that we've seen here in the United States about the current war in Gaza, some of the images that you can find online, you'll, you'll see an image of there's a Jewish student, they're going to, to class, they're surrounded by protesters, they're yelling at him about Israel. What if the kid doesn't really care about Israel, doesn't really have a, a thought about the politics? What if he doesn't identify with Netanyahu and think, okay, I'm, I'm fully on board, I support everything Israel is doing? What if it's just a kid going to class? Why does he have to answer for Zionists? You can see this on the other side of the coin as well, right? There was an uh, example, I think it was in Chicago, very early after the war in Gaza started. There was, I think, a a child that was killed. He was stabbed by this guy. And the guy was like, well, this is, you know, about uh, the October 7th attacks. Why does that kid have any responsibility or any connection to what Hamas did? Why, why are they responsible? Why is any Arab walking down the street responsible for the actions of Mohammed Atta or Al-Qaeda or ISIS? They're not. Or they shouldn't be. But the person using the violence is putting them in that category and drawing that distinction. And so, again, to kind of bring all this back together, these reprisals make sense in the minds of the organization's that are carrying them out in the militants and the the people that are like, ah, go get them. But for the people on the receiving end of the violence, they don't necessarily share these same views. They don't necessarily share the same conception of a zero-sum struggle between Arabs and Israelis or Jews and, and, and Muslims or whatever. So in the end, I think what we see here is a lot of reciprocal violence that then reciprocates itself. Part of the reason that splinter or more radical groups use violence to try to influence politics is not that they think the violence itself will will make things change directly, will make people leave directly, will win people over directly, but it's more in, in the idea that it provokes a response and the response drives consciousness. So when you're on the receiving end of violence, when you're on the receiving end of discrimination, you suddenly start to feel more Jewish, more Muslim, more Arab, more Palestinian, more you know Zionist, whatever you want to call it. One of these days, I'll, I'll get to do a podcast about the Franco-Algerian War or the Algerian War of Independence. One of the key moments in that is the massacre at Philippeville in 1955. It's basically a French minority in this uh, Arab-majority village, and uh, the FLN comes in, the the Algerian nationalist group. They kill all these civilians. It's brutal. The French troops show up. The French troops get angry. They just start bombing and killing any Arabs that they can find. And even though Philippeville isn't a military victory, people look at the violence that their community experienced and start to start thinking, of people that are different than them as the other, as different. They're they're more willing to identify them in terms of those 
ethnic categories, nationalist categories, religious categories, whatever you want to say, than they are at a human level as individuals. So all of this is to say that you have these radical groups that are carrying out attacks, especially on the Jewish side, Etzel, and the effect is to further drive the two communities apart. Incidentally, uh, just to give you a sense of the mindset of people in the Irgun or the Etzel, which is a very, very small minority, as one member expressed in 1938, the organization's philosophy was, whoever does not wish to be beaten has no choice but to attack. Again, if we're trying to understand why are these people doing it, why are they turning to violence, especially on the Jewish side of the equation, the mid to late 1930s are a period of extreme anti-Semitism. Uh, they're being driven out of Germany. They're being kind of pushed to, to, to expulsion. There's widespread anti-Semitism in places like France, in places like Poland. It's also here in the United States. There's American fascist movement that will become anti-Semitic. There's also the Ku Klux Klan, right? They're already here. And so persecution becomes an excuse for violence, which is another thing that we'll see again and again over the course of this podcast. Incidentally, again, drawing sort of these parallels, there's another kind of interesting thing that happens, which is that in the course of making these resistance movements, sometimes the resistance movements don't get along with each other. I mentioned that the Haganah and the Irgun don't like each other. This actually turns to violence. On June 16, 1933, the Etzel assassinates the director of the Jewish agency's political department, Chaim Olosorov, while he's walking with his wife on the Tel Aviv shore. There are moments in the 1930s and 40s when the Haganah and the Etzel will, you could say it's a civil war, it's kind of one-sided or more one-sided. The, the Etzel is never really a huge organization like the Haganah is. It's not a mass organization, but the Haganah will crack down on them. And again, we'll see. Again, these, these mirror images in some cases across history. What's going on in the early 2000s in the Gaza Strip, in the West Bank? It is Fatah and Hamas fighting each other, cracking down on each other. Anyway, to get back to the major point, as we saw in the Palestinian case, there are other even more radical operators on the Zionist side. Another one that we can mention that is extremely small is the Lehi. The Lehi, or the Fighters for Freedom in Israel, is founded in the mid-1930s during the Arab Revolt by a Polish Jew named Avram Stern. The Lehi view the British as the main obstacle to Jewish freedom. And so as a result, they begin a campaign of explicit terror against the British. They will kind of anticipate some of the techniques used by the FLN in Algeria. They will have random shootings of police officers. In 1944, they will assassinate Lord Moyne, the owner of the Guinness Brewing Company, who is involved in, in the Mandatory Authority. Now again, the Lehi are never really that popular. They're even smaller than the Irgun or the Etzel. But all it takes is a couple people to unleash violence. Think about the effects that the 9-11 hijackers had. There weren't that many of them. But man, did they change perceptions about community all across the world. Okay, another key building block of the future Israeli state was the Histradrut, an all-Jewish labor union founded in Haifa in December of 1920. The backstory of this organization is not really that complicated. Basically, you have 
Again, on the eve of World War I, a number of Jewish socialist groups in Palestine, they're interested in economic questions, labor, things like that. Then as you get into the 1920s, this question of, of doctrine matters less and less than the real experience of building a Jewish national society. And so they'll eventually again come together December 1920 and found an all-Jewish labor union. Now, they go beyond the idea of a union as we would think today, where, okay, unions negotiate contracts. That's mainly what they do. The Histrodut will try to find employment for Jewish immigrants, right? You have this massive number of immigrants, tens of thousands coming in in the 1920s. The Histrodut will try to find jobs for them, will try to find ways for them to be able to prosper. Now, sometimes, as I mentioned, the economy is taking off, it's growing, there's, there's even Arab immigrants coming in. And so the Histrodrut doesn't just say, oh, well, you know, we'll try to find people jobs wherever we can. We'll make jobs available if we have to. We'll go to Jewish-owned businesses and put pressure on them to fire their Arab employees and to replace them with Jews. They also get involved in regulating labor and industry. Normally, you would expect there to be, you know, kind of development of a social welfare state. We'd have regulations about things, and the British Mandate Authority does some of that. But basically, the Histrodut actually takes over a lot of these functions. It is more than just a labor union. It becomes a kind of Jewish economy that is kind of closed off from the local Arab population. They help Jewish workers break into industries such as railroads. They get them jobs working as bureaucrats. In 1923, the Histrodut actually forms its own corporation, the Hevrat Ovdim, which hires its own workers. Why wait for employers to, to make a decision? Why try to put pressure on them? Just build your own businesses. Own them collectively. By 1926, they are buying up produce from the kibbutzim. The kibbutzim, again, they don't have a lot of capital especially. They're usually working lands that aren't very good. It's, it's very hard struggle. Many people fail and leave the kibbutzim. How do we support the kibbutzim? We're going to buy their produce. Now, this is great if you live on a kibbutzim. If you're an Arab farmer and you suddenly find that part of this great new market that's developing is now closing itself off to you, well, that is going to increase tensions between the two communities. In the end, the Histrodut will set up its own bank, its own housing company. They will form their own health insurance network. They will set up hospitals and clinics. And by 1933, quarters of the working Jewish population of Palestine is employed by the Histrodut. It's really stunning in some ways to think about the construction of Jewish society in Palestine in the 1920s and 30s. By the time you get to the Nazis expelling Jews from Germany, by the time you get to the late 1930s, Zionism is not just stuff you read in Herzl's book about you know, the Jewish state. It's not just a dream. It's not even just a, a kind of project that you're working towards. It, in many ways, large parts of it are done already. They have built not just a Jewish community, but a Jewish society, a Jewish economy, Jewish 
political bodies, a Jewish military. By the time you get to, again, the mid to late 30s, all the elements of creating a separate Jewish national state are essentially there. The moment when you could have had a one-state solution, the moment when we could have built a post-colonial, multicultural, multi-ethnic society where they're all working together and living together, it's, it's kind of gone. Now, whether that should have happened or it shouldn't have happened, that's up to you to decide. But the, the, the die is kind of already cast in some ways where these two cannot live together in a single political entity anymore. Now, before I end this episode, I, I do want to end on, I don't know if a happy note is the right way to put it, but there are some opportunities in the early 20s when maybe, maybe things could have gone in a different path. There are efforts in the immediate post-World War I period as Faisal is trying to create his greater Syrian kingdom, as the Arab revolt is going on at the same time that you're trying to have Jews fighting against the Ottoman Empire, there are moments when maybe something could have been worked out. Prince Faisal and Chaim Weizmann, who we've talked about already, they actually meet several times at the end of 1918 and 1919. They actually develop a kind of friendship with one another. Now, how personal the friendship was, I don't know. Obviously, some friendships are political when you get involved in high political circles. For Faisal, the idea is that maybe the Jews can help support his campaign against the French. Maybe the Zionists can help him create an independent Arab state, a greater Syria. Zionists, on the other hand, of course, are hoping that maybe we can tone down the anti-Zionism. Maybe we can get Arabs on board with the idea of a Jewish national home, whatever that means, an independent state an autonomous region, maybe Jews just live as a large minority, but with the right to immigrate. On January 4th, 1919, these discussions actually produce a treaty between the two in which Faisal promised unrestricted Jewish immigration, unrestricted Jewish immigration, and the right to settle on the land so long as Arab tenant farmers were not kicked off their land and that they actually received economic assistance from the Jewish community. Again, you, you find people that talk about, well, you know, once the you know, first migration start in the 1880s, Palestine is already full. There's no room for Jews. Faisal seemed to think that there was room, that there was places that they could, could both settle. In July of 1919, Faisal actually invited an advocate of Jewish-Arab cooperation to the Syrian National Congress. And that man, Chaim Kavaritsky, actually produced a plan for a multi-ethnic Palestine that would have guaranteed freedom of religion, required the teaching of Hebrew and Arabic in both schools, and denied any separatist movements of any kind. Arab leaders actually signaled some openness to it. But this time, it was Zionist political leadership that rejected it. Why did they do this? In part, it has to do with geopolitics. Zionists were not willing to throw their lot in with the local Arab population in their resistance to British and French colonialism. Basically, the Zionist movement thinks, you know, we have a better chance of getting what we want by working with the British than we will if we work with the local Arab population. 
Several weeks later, of course, Faisal's forces are defeated, and the idea of a mutual cooperation between them seems to be over. Faisal is no longer going to support Zionism just on its merits. Right? In some ways, he kind of feels betrayed. There are other moments in the early 1920s when we do see, again, efforts to, to get the two communities to work together. By April, negotiators in Cairo, including a group of Arab leaders from greater Syria, they start trying to hash out the idea of Jewish economic and political support for local Arabs in exchange to a cessation in anti-Zionist propaganda and the establishment of a three-religion commission to aid in governance of mandatory Palestine. Crucially, both sides agreed to set aside previous diplomatic agreements that were favorable to their respective causes. The Jewish negotiators say, hey, we're willing to put Balfour in the trash can if you're willing to do the same for the McMahon-Hussein letters of 1915, which kind of implied that at least portions of Palestine would go to Arabs. Now, at this point, the British are the ones who step in and block the two groups working together. They, of course, want control of Palestine for themselves. They do not want Jews and Arabs working together. And so they cancel all the meetings. Weizmann is no longer allowed to meet with uh, his Egyptian and Jordanian counterparts. The initial phases of building the mandate government also then mark a missed opportunity. As we saw, Herbert Samuel does try to create a legislative council that would have included representatives from all three of the region's main religious groups. This time, it's the Arab leaders that rejected it. As we mentioned before, they did not want to concede any power to what they saw as an alien minority group. Another major problem that complicated or exacerbated the situation was, of course, violence which for the first time became widespread between the two communities after World War I. There's limited amounts of violence. There's, there's local violence. There's theft. There's vandalism. There's stuff like that. There's fights. But there isn't like a lot of killing that goes on before World War I, although there are some episodes of that. Whatever the hopes for a Jewish-Arab alliance was among the Faisals and Weizmanns of the world, Sustained episodes of intercommunal violence complicated their political efforts. In late 1919, for example, Bedouin tribesmen attacked Jewish settlements in Upper Galilee. Now again, did these tribesmen represent the will of, of the Arabs of Palestine? Probably not. But the people that were on the receiving end of that violence certainly understood it as Arab-on-Jewish violence. Early in 1920, Arab attacks on Zionist settlements led to several deaths, including that of Joseph Trimpledor, one of the organizers of the Jewish Legion. Now, Trimpledor was already sort of a Zionist hero, but his death helped mobilize support for Jewish defense organizations. It further convinced individuals of the need for political separation from their Arab neighbors. In response, Vladimir Yabotinsky asked British authorities for the right to deputize a defense force. When those authorities said no, obviously states need to have, as we said, a monopoly on the legitimate use of violence. Yabotinsky says, screw it, I'm just going to do it myself. He begins importing, as I said, arms from abroad, first for the Haganah and then later on for the Irgun. 
while also carrying out reprisal attacks on local Arab villages as a form of vigilante justice. On April 4, 1920, tensions between these two communities boil over into widespread violence in an incident known as the Nebi Musa riots. The trouble begins during the Muslim celebration of Nebi Musa. Nebi Musa is basically uh, Moses. So this is a traditional celebration uh, of Moses. It's a Muslim holiday, not a Jewish one. But uh, Moses is also a prophet for Muslims. It usually takes place around Passover and Easter. And it features a pilgrimage to Moses' supposed grave. It often starts in Jerusalem. And so you have large numbers of Muslims getting together, again, getting ready to celebrate this uh, festival. In 1920, on this date, with the background context of the intercommunal violence, Arab nationalists, including the future Mufti, Haj Amin, launch a bitter verbal attack on the local Jewish community. Now, this isn't just, again, kind of happening. It's not just kind of coincidental. Uh, Part of what's going on is that the Entente powers are meeting at San Remo. They're trying to hash out kind of plans for the future of mandatory Palestine. And so the purpose is kind of most likely to send a message, right? We Arabs do not want this Jewish minority here. We don't want to recognize them. Let us show you how much we don't want you building this Jewish national home into our land. And so after three days of riots, five Jews and four Arabs die. Several hundred are wounded on both sides. Now, that probably doesn't sound like a whole lot. I'm recording this in February 2024. There's a war going on in Gaza. There's, of course, the October 7th attacks that happen. We're talking about hundreds or thousands of people dying, tens of thousands today in Gaza. What is four or five people? But at the time, it's a pretty big deal. At the time, that's a lot. These Nebi Musa riots are, in fact, what leads to the dismissal of the Husseini mayor of Jerusalem, which, of course, ends up then bringing Haj Amin to power. And, of course, then it also convinces the Abotinskis of Palestine of the virtues and the necessity of a strong armed defense. So the Nebi Musa riots are really a key moment in the story. It's a fundamental point when, again, a lot of the the kind of people involved start to say, you know what, we need to start moving away from each other. In the following decade, more violent incidents will occur, which further drive the two communities apart. In May 1921, we have a parade by Jewish communists through an Arab neighborhood, which results in more rioting. This time, 47 Jews will die. 48 Arabs will die. Another major incident occurs in 1928. Basically, you have a a Jewish sexton, and he's going to place a screen at the Wailing Wall, which is the most holy site in all of uh, Judaism. It's the last remnant of the Second Temple. Orthodox Jews, kind of like Muslims, don't believe in mixing men and women together during prayer time. And so this guy, he's Orthodox, he says, okay, I'm going to put this screen up. You know, we don't want people getting distracted when they're going to this uh, site of prayer. There had been uh, an agreement between the two sides dealing with the Temple Mount, which is where the uh, Wailing Wall is. It's also where the Al-Aqsa Mosque is, the third holiest site in Islam. Tensions between the two communities are pretty strong. And so uh, basically they say, okay, we're not going to allow any changes to this because any changes are going to piss people off. 
Well, the sexton puts the screen there, and the mufti accuses him of violating this agreement not to make changes. They're going to pull the screen down. This gets into protests. People are chanting at each other. They're shouting at each other. Whether or not this was just a coincidence or this was a a particularly effective middle finger, uh, the Arabs will start building, uh, do construction right above the Western Wall to try to interrupt the Jewish prayers or kind of, you know, frustrate Jewish prayers. So all of this leads to considerable tensions. And on August 16th, 1929, another Jewish youth group will provocatively parade through the area. They provoke counter demonstrations. Eventually things turn violent. On August 23rd, five days of bloodshed ensue and 133 Jews and 87 Arabs die this time, again with hundreds of wounded on both sides. To make a long story short, what happens again after this is another British inquiry, followed by the Passfield White Paper of 1930. Both of these basically more or less blame the Jews for these pressures. Why is this happening? Because of Jewish immigration. And so the British, despite what the mandate charter had said, basically start walking back immigration, start trying to lessen the amount of Jews who are going to be able to make it to Palestine. Now, they also kind of talk out of both sides of their mouth. They will uh, affirm Balfour in a letter to Weitzman from Ramsey MacDonald. But in the end, this strategy is basically counterproductive because it basically convinces both groups of the correctness of their claims and essentially rewards the ones who are confrontational. The die, one could argue, was now set for the largest and most consequential episode of violence yet, the 1936 Arab Revolt that will last for three years, that will have devastating, devastating consequences on the Palestinian side of the equation. Again, there's a lot of questions that we're trying to answer today. How do we, how do we get to where we are in the present situation? One of the questions is, why isn't there a Palestine? Why do we get an Israel in 1948 and no Palestine? And a huge part of that, some historians would argue, is the 1936 Arab Revolt, which turns out to be a massive failure. But as I said, we'll get into that next time. All right, that's our show for today. I'd like to thank you for listening. Next time on History Off the Page, we will, as I said, get into the issue of the Arab Revolt. We'll talk about the British decision to close Palestine to Jewish immigration and the effects of World War II on the situation. We'll also begin to see, hopefully, how Nazi Germany began to interfere in the conflict. When people talk about colonialism and and the role of outsiders meddling in the Israel-Palestine debate, there's a lot of focus, obviously, on the British, a lot of focus on the United States. As I've kind of already argued, the Ottoman Empire needs to be a kind of key thing that people think about. But the Germans also get involved in this game as well. The Germans will try to get Arabs to revolt against British rule. And so what's the best way to do that? Well, especially for the Nazis, it's to pump out anti-Semitism. So we'll talk about that. We'll also get into the story of Haj Amin, the Mufti of Jerusalem. Haj Amin, not to give too much away, but Haj Amin will look at the Nazis as a productive partner. He will try to actively encourage connections between the two. At any rate... If you liked our show, please like or subscribe. Tell your friends about us. Basically, we don't have an advertising budget. The way that we spread is just through word of mouth. Obviously, there's a lot of interest in this subject. 
So, um, you know, a lot of polemics out there. I've tried the best I can to give you kind of a sense of how both sides get to where they are today. So uh, really appreciate those of you that mention us on social media and tell your friends about us. You can also check out some of our other episodes on topics like the origins of the Ukrainian war, Queen Elizabeth, the French Revolution. Uh, we're, uh, once we're done with this series, we're going to talk about Nazi Germany. So there's a lot out there, and you can read more about that on our website, www.historyoffthepage.com. That's all for now. We hope you join us next time as we take history off the page.